Welcome to the Bless the City Church podcast. This morning, we are excited to invite back our friend, Pastor Bill Coleman. Pastor Bill's been a blessing in my life. He's pastor at Westgate Chapel and has spoken here a few times, I believe, twice. I think twice. And so anyway, just thanks for coming. Thank you. Uh, Nick and I were having an amazing theological discussion before church started this morning. Uh, he is a philosopher and a theologian, in case you didn't know that. That's okay. And um, he was talking about a book by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. And it's an amazing book. But the thing that I got from it when I read it is that the weight of glory would be like this. If, if he were alive, if, if President Reagan were to walk into this room, and I would say, hi, because I know who he, who he is, you, it wouldn't wow you all at all. But if he walked in the door and went, hey, Bill, how you doing? That would impress you. And that's the weight of the glory of God is that he knows us. He knows you. If you feel unseen, and that's really the reason I'm speaking on that this morning, I felt like I wanted to say that. If you feel unseen, nobody knows me. Nobody knows where I am. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Um, nobody knows, this. goes on to say, like Jesus. And I just want you to know that you are seen this morning. Exactly as you are, and sometimes that's oh me. But he sees you, and he knows what you're going through. Scripture says he's acquainted with my grief. And I just want to speak. That's not my subject. That's the first message for free. Is I just want to, you to know that this morning, that the Father knows where you are, knows who you are, knows what you are, and knows how you are. And so, yeah, feel seen this morning by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we need you. I need you to deliver the word that you put in my heart. Holy Spirit, come. Come and breathe over our ears and our eyes and our hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know what you would speak to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So before you think I uh, don't care for my teeth, I've got a big gap in the front this morning because Tuesday night I'm chewing gum. On this side of my mouth, and this tooth falls out. Well, it really doesn't fall out. It gets in my gum. And I don't know what this, nut, this bump is in my, and it's my front tooth. So if you see a big gap, it's not because I really don't care about my teeth. It's because I haven't had time to be to the dentist yet, but we're working on that. So pray for me because my F's and other consonants don't come out the way I'm used to, but... Here we go. Thankfully, you're not on the front row because there may be an overspray. I'm just. Thank you. John 10.10. We know it well, don't we? Most of us quote it all the time. I came that they might have life 
and have it abundantly, more abundantly. So why then, my question, if that is Jesus' comment to me, he came that I might have life and abundant life, so why then is it so hard? Sometimes living by faith can be difficult. Can I get an amen? So my question is, why? Why is it so difficult? If Christ has provided for abundant life, why? Well, I think it's because we missed the first part. I did it there, the first part. It's just because we have an adversary. We have an opposer, a resistor. Our adversary is described in Scripture as a liar. Uh, A matter of fact, he's called the father of lies. He's a murderer, a destroyer, and a thief. Now, John 10.10 begins with describing the activities of our adversary. It says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is in the business of ripping us off. I've never really thought about Satan as a thief. I mean, I knew that, but it's the other parts that we look at, isn't it? We look at him as the destroyer, as the killer. I don't, somehow, um, there was a, I just came across a story in my mind. We had a small school when we pastored in Oklahoma City, and there was a big church, and the pastor's grandson attended the church, and he got in trouble because a teacher walked into the bathroom. And for whatever reason, he wasn't using the urinal, he was using the wall. He was only five. Maybe I should add that. He was only five. That might be an important fact. And so brought into the school administrator, he said, why, why did you? He said, well, the devil told me to do it. And so he came, that's a preacher's kid, you know. And he came back and said, well, don't you know that he's a liar and a thief? And the young kid came back. Yeah, I remember he was a thief, but I forgot he was a liar. <laughs> Did that not come out right? Don is looking at me. Oh. <laughs> well, never mind. I guess that doesn't matter. No. What, what we're looking at is that he is a thief. But he doesn't want my stuff. I mean, he doesn't want my home. He doesn't want the house I live in. He doesn't need a vehicle, for he has all kinds of modes of transportation. He has no interest in my clothes, or or he's a spirit being. He has no need for that. He doesn't care about our investments. What would money mean to him? But he's very interested in stealing spiritual treasures, things that have value with God. And are of eternal significance. For example, our very purpose for living, Satan loves to snatch. He loves to steal. Men and women on the streets of any city, people who have potential and turn around, and God's given them amazing grace and amazing ideas and amazing creativity. And turning those kind our all people he can get a hold of, turning them into glassy-eyed wanderers through life. 
with no goal from day to day. They lie in bed at night staring at the ceiling saying, what's the point? Just to make money? I mean, just to have kids? Why? What, what is this all about? And people then turn to drugs and alcohol because they don't have a clue as to why they're alive. Others turn to career, achievements, pleasure, materialism, something, anything to fill the void of their purposelessness. And it doesn't work. Nothing fills the void. God created us to worship and enjoy him forever. That's kind of what Nick was talking about this morning. We're going to be able to sing these songs a long time. Enjoy him forever. But this awareness has been stolen. The fact that God cares and can be enjoyed. So notice the progression in John 10.10. Satan's first move is just petty larceny. Once he manages, he's the thief. Once he manages that, he can move on to the actual killing. And from there to mass destruction, steal, kill, and destroy. But it all starts with stealing. You know, I, I have to tell you, I've not thought about Satan stealing from me. That never kind of entered my mind. But we see from the scripture, God has got an answer in that Christ came to bring abundant life. And so when he steals, I've got to find myself back in the abundant life. Even among us who are Christians, the devil has a strategy. I don't mean I'm probably going to show my age, but how many of you remember the gospel track called the four spiritual laws. Okay. And what's the first? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. You got to understand he has a plan. He has a strategy to take you out, to make you ineffective, to cause you to be so ripped and torn and isolated and down on yourself. I'm not seeing nobody cares what good am I. He has a terrible plan for your life. For example, um, I've seen a lot of, over the years, a lot of tragic loss of first love for Jesus. There's a time in our lives when we love Jesus so much more than we do today. Isn't that supposed to work the other way around? Our appetite for God's words are, was voracious. We couldn't get enough. We couldn't read enough. Nothing else mattered. I want to get home. I'm off my job. I want to get home, and I want to get to the book. I want to get to a place where? We, our love for God's house was enthusiastic. We, every time the doors would be open, we'd be here. Even if it was just for nursery workers, and I'm not a nursery worker. We want to be here. And our eagerness for spreading the gospel was so strong. Now, my question is, now how is it? I mean, we still love the Lord, and we still come to church, 
But what happened to all that energy and passion and fire that I believe God intended us to have? See, that's the problem that Jesus addresses with the Ephesians church in Revelations 2.2. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken, forsaken your first love. Remember the, the height from which you have fallen. Repeat, repent and do things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstands from its place. So where does that first love go? Where, how does that, our zeal, our intensity, our fire, doesn't just evaporate. I believe Satan steals the hot embers of our devotions, of our consecration. We get ripped off, distracted, issues of pain and sorrow and other stuff that life can bring. Somebody might say, well, you have to understand that back when I met Jesus, I was an energetic teenager. A lot has happened since then. You know, we all mellow out with time. Does anybody here this morning really believe that? I mean, with our walk with God as he is ever unveiling revelation upon revelation of who he is. I believe that's kind of God's modus of operandi. If you go to the throne room, the angels are crying, holy, 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 and the Four and twenty elders are seated on their throne. And in my mind, I believe the angels have picked up some nugget of the revelation of God the Father. And the angels fall, excuse me, the four and twenty-four fall on their face and begin to worship because of that revelation. Well, I believe that's been going on forever. It's God who is ever revealing. God who is ever increasing. God who is opening and not, he's not trying to, I, we get this idea that God's on a throne and, and is very closed and nobody can get, God is saying, I want to talk to you. So do we believe that we're supposed to be less on fire now, mellow out? The Bible says that God's plan for us is that we be transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Ever-increasing glory. Uh, there's no end to his power. He wants to exhibit in our lives. The Bible has no retirement plan. It doesn't matter how much your knees ache. It doesn't matter how much your body wants to slow down. I don't see retirement in God's plan. The Bible has no retirement plan. God can keep his people, God can keep his people on fire, can keep them sharp and intense. But I think we need to be honest to admit that what has really happened is that there is no point in conning ourselves. We've been ripped off. We've been distracted. We've been, our spirit has been wetted, watered down by the master thief. 
Am I speaking to any of us here this morning, or is this just? We saw a pastor this last Sunday, guest speaker in our church, and he was talking about speaking in a uh, uh, Swedish, Norwegian group of people. And he was preaching hard, and he thought he was doing terrible because the response was this. And somebody said, he said, this is how they said amen. And this is how they said hallelujah. Oh. And later, they were just all like, you did wonderful. And he said, well, why didn't you tell your face? So I hope we're on the right page this morning. So what about the unique calling? You mean I have a calling? I believe you do. I believe every one of us here, whether we feel worthy, the truth is we aren't. But that God doesn't call us because we're worthy. He calls us out of his sovereign desire and plan that he has for you. The calling that, the, that rests on every Christian's life, the gifting to serve others in the name of the Lord. Years ago, there was a stirring inside of you. God gave you a dream, gave you a vision about what he wanted you to do. Maybe he wanted you to teach children. Maybe he wanted you to sing. Maybe he wanted you to be a prayer warrior standing in the gap for other people in need. Maybe there was even a pull toward the mission field that was birthed by the Holy Spirit himself. Maybe. But then you got discouraged. Somebody let you down. Something went sour at church. And you tried once or twice, but somebody criticized you. And soon the dream was gone, and the calling wasn't so real, and all the inspiration you had felt is missing. So where do you think it went? <laughs> all that dreaming, all that enthusiasm, and that hoping towards something. Something very precious was stolen along the way. The devil's always going to try to rob us of something God has blessed us with. When he succeeds, the spiritual giftings seem to just kind of fade away. And the material things occupy our attention. You know, one of the things about owning things that I don't like, because I'm not good at it, is maintenance. You know, maintain a lawnmower. Really? I get in, turn it on, and it's supposed to go. But I'm not a maintenance kind of guy. A friend of mine who works on boats says there are two kinds of boat owners. The boat that's just gotten out of trouble or the boat that's just getting into trouble. <laughs> so he keeps him happy because he works all the time. Matter of fact, I heard his backup is a year. Yeah. So consider the subject of marriage. The latest survey by researcher George Barnas shows that the divorce rate among churchgoers is equal, if not greater, than the population at large. I want to say, what? 
As a counselor, that's my background, my training, my education. I truly believe if two are Christians, there's nothing that can't be worked through and forgiven and made better if both hearts are yielded to the Holy Spirit and what God is saying to them. But yet we find that over 50% of the Christian population find themselves breaking up. So why do couples break up? It's because they should have gotten married. Maybe is it because they shouldn't have gotten married in the first place? Oh God, what have I done? Or because they came from a dysfunctional home and had bad role models. There's more to it than that. The thief comes to steal. In fact, Satan fully intends to destroy marriage. Even among pastors who have served side by side, years and years and years, pastor and wife in ministry, there's a reality of spiritual warfare. The only, only the power of Christ can keep two together as God has planned and to give them victory over Satan's destructive power. It's usually not talked about in public, but many tears are shed and prayers offered up to God as sincere servants of the Lord to do battle against the demonic forces set on stealing marriages. Steals their credibility and effectiveness within the denomination that Donna, Donna and I came from had stipulation that if you had been divorced, you couldn't pastor. No divorce was allowed. And so pastors would jokingly say, it'd be easier for me if I murdered her than if I divorce her because I can be forgiven for murder. You're not laughing. <laughs> Maybe it's right you shouldn't. Um, what about our children? Now Donna and I have two grandchildren that are amazing. Parenting is great. Grandparenting is amazing. We have one son, and I told him he had to have ten kids. So we've dedicated them to God at an altar. Once upon a time, we stood before the minister and said, very sincerely, oh God, this baby belongs to you. But something has happened in the years since. And the young man, the dad and the mom have somehow, they're not living for God anymore. And there's no use pretending that they are. Let's not close our eyes or make believe otherwise. Before we can see God do what only he can do, we must spiritually diagnose exactly what's going on around us. We have to call it what it is. So at the core of all of these losses that we've mentioned this morning is the silent theft, I believe, of the most critical element in our spiritual walk. It's our faith. So what is faith? It's the total dependence upon God that becomes supernatural in its working. People with faith develop a second kind of sight. They see more than just the circumstances. They see more than just the facts. 
They see God right beside them. Can they prove it? No, but by faith they know he's there nonetheless. And without faith, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, it's impossible to please God. Nothing else counts if faith is missing. And there is no other foundation for Christian living, no matter the amount of self-effort spent. Nothing less, nothing else touches God's heart as much as when his children simply trust him. Isn't that what faith is? I believe God will do what God says he will do. And the interesting thing in that chapter 11, it says that there were some who didn't receive what they believed for. Yet God counted them as righteousness because of their belief. That's an odd one, isn't it? We meet people all the time who are at one time would pray over anything. Parking spaces. They've lost their glasses. How many times have you lost your glasses and said, oh, God, help me find them? And sure enough, we would find them. The glasses would be found. Now, the same people seem to, be, to believe that God can do much of all, seem not to believe that God can do much of anything. Oh, they'll still give you the standard of faith. Yes, I have a faith in God who answers prayer. But that vibrant trust, expectation, and fire is no longer there. Reminds me of him. Oh, Lord, send your fire just now. Oh, Lord, send your fire. That burning, all-consuming fire burns up the dross and the stuff in me that needs to be burnt. Losing that vibrant expectation. I think it comes from years of trying to stand. I can give you an example, maybe a little too personal, but... 20 years ago, about, when we came to Seattle, um, I was extremely musical, uh, led worship, uh, could sing anything, put music in front of me. I could sing it, sight read it. I mean, I just music was a great part of my life since I was five years old. In the back seat of the car, mom would say, okay, let's sing. And we'd do three-part harmony before I even knew what harmony was. So music was very basically ingrained in me, came to Westgate with music being a part of the portfolio that they wanted, and my ears went... Lost 40 to 50% of my hearing. And the kind of thing, it's called my near syndrome, that attacks the hair in your ears, which means you don't have pitch. I remember trying to take piano lessons, and I couldn't because going up the scale didn't sound like the octave it should sound like. I would say that the piano's in tune, and I'd go up and hit that B flat, and I'm going, or that B, just a B, and it would go, that shouldn't be there. It should be a little higher. And so as a result, I can't sing. I can sing by myself. Most of the time you wouldn't tell if I'd get off 
into another key. Not always, but most of the But there's a drive in me, a desire in me to be used musically. I've been praying for that for 20 years. It not be, may not be dramatic to you, but very dramatic to me. And what I've heard the Lord say is that it, it's not a sentence. It's a season. Well, that's a good thing because I've done a lot of stupid things in my past and would be worthy of God sentencing me and saying, I'm taking this from you because you've been stupid. I, I have to tell you, I'm confessing. But he said, no, it was a season. So I'm waiting for the season to be ended. I'm still pushing up against what is like a thousand pound rock that never moves. Now, the rock doesn't move, but your muscles are really getting tired. And I have to tell you that we can allow that to pray for something like that for as many years as you have, and you can go, you can pray yourself into unbelief. It, now, it's not God's gonna, God's gonna bring it around. I believe I've got the fire of God, I've got His promise, and now it becomes, I guess God will do what He wants to do. I've asked Him how many times, and He knows. What good does it do for me to bring it up again? Well, I can hope. You see, the enemy, I believe, wants to steal that edge of your faith, that belief that presses. I mean, we can stand and in confession say, I believe God, but we've lost the vibrant trust. We aren't saying, come on, let's go after the problem in the name of the Lord. We've been robbed. So I want to tell you one real quick story. Jeremy said, you guys get out of three. Well, it's going to be shorter than that. Three, oh. Well, that's what you're used to. <laughs> then both of us will be babbling by that time. There's one obscure story in, at the end of 1 Samuel that speaks, I think, to this matter in vivid detail. It's one of the low points on the roller coaster of David's life. The young conqueror of the giant Goliath is now on the run from King Saul. So many threats, so many close calls. He actually goes to live among the Philistines. You know, there's a story about the cave of Adullam where David went to hide out and there were men who were disturbed in debt and depressed. I think there were three Ds who joined him. Wouldn't you love to live in that cave? <laughs> scripture, what's cool, the scripture says that in their weakness, they became strong. Their valor became strong. So here David is, and he actually goes to live with the Philistines <laughs> for a year. He goes to live with the enemy for a year because he's run out of places to hide in Israel. David would hide. Saul would hear where he was, come chasing after David, but David would get a word from the Lord and move. 
how frustrating to King Saul. He had his own little militia of 600 men, plus wives and children, and they set up in a place called Ziklag, which is in Philistia, in the Philistine country. And when the Philistines, I mean, he would go to war with them and help them sack the nations around. So the Philistines decided to go to war against Israel. That put David kind of in a a tough spot. He's a fighter, of course, a warrior. So he lines up with King Achish. But the Philistine generals spot David and say to their king, Hey, what does David think he's doing? What? Why, what do you mean, the king says. That famous son-in-law of King Saul right there. No way is he going with us on this campaign. And Achish, Achish tries to defend David's loyalty, but doesn't get anywhere with these generals. And they say, look, don't you know the song they sing all over Israel? That Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands and some of those ten thousands were us. He is definitely not going with us into battle. So David and his militia get sent back home. And when they come home to Ziklag, approaching home, they start to see something on the horizon that's not normal. And they realize as they begin to fast trot that the smoke on the horizon. And they soon discover something dreadful. Every wife, every son, every daughter, every cow, every lamb are gone. Someone has made a raid. Burning down the city and stealing everything. These husbands and wives are stunned. Excuse me. Husbands and fathers are stunned by the desolation. They're heartbroken. Imagine them thinking of their wives and daughters being captured by some roving band of marauders. My lovely wife is missing. What's happening to my 14-year-old daughter right now? They can only imagine the unrestrained brutality and heartlessness that has had to have occurred in the time that's gone by. They begin to cry so hard that they run out of tears. They're devastated. David's family is gone too. Everything is lost. Everything is stolen. And it's such a moment of human sorrow and tears run out. Other emotions begin to play. They cannot bear the pain. So they begin to lash out at David saying, what are we doing out here anyway? Whose bright idea was it to join the Philistine army. We should have been taking care of our families. Ah, let's stone David. Then comes this wonderful phrase in Samuel 36. David was now in great danger because all the men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters and they begin talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. I mean, I think this comes from reminding ourselves of all that God has done. 
David reminded himself of the very nature of God and his faithfulness. So in one translation says, and David encouraged himself in the Lord. You ever been there? There's sometimes only a hymn and a song of praise because it said the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. He sits enthroned on the praises of his people and there's something about praising him and lifting him that I begin to let my faith stir a little bit. And I'm reminded, because these songs are so awesome, about the character and the faithfulness of God. I'm reminded about who he is. And once again, I get a fresh breath. And once again, I listen. Having gotten back his pose, his spiritual equilibrium, David consults with God about what he should do, seeking God's strategy. Should I chase those who marauded our town? And if I do, will I find them? He asks. And God replies, yes, go after them and you will find them. So they take off. Now, I'm sorry, this gets me tickled. They were just saying, who led us here? Who brought us to this place? Why did we follow you in the first place? And David says, let's go get them. And they go, okay. (laughs) Along the way, riding across the desert, they come upon a half-conscious Egyptian slave. After they revive him with some cool water, the man admits some vital information. I was with the Amalekites, and they raided the area, and we burned Ziklag, but I got sick. Well, how would you like to help us out now in exchange for your life? The man doesn't have to think too long about that one. He agrees to guide David's army, so they set out again, and soon they come over the brow of the ridge to see the Amalekites below having a big party and a a drunken yahoo. And in the name of the Lord, David leads his men down the hill against them, following God's strategy. And for a full 24 hours, all night and all the next day, they hit the Amalekites hard. So this was the day that David found out that God is more than a creator. Look through his Psalms. He was more than our defender. He surrounds me with songs of victory. He is more than a rock or a strong tower. As David calls him in many of the Psalms, he was more than a protector from King Saul when he was hiding. David learned that powerful truth that God recovers stolen property. Think of what's been stolen from you. What hope, what dream. He recovers stolen property he was a way he has a way of getting back what's been ripped off what the enemy steals God alone is able to recover and here is the best part of it David discovered that every wife every son every daughter was still alive as amazing not even one lamb was gone 
Listen to how the Bible describes the scene. It says that the Egyptian slave in 1 Samuel 30, 16, led David to them, and they found the Amalekites spread out across the field, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah. So these guys have been on a raid for a while. And Ziklag just happened to be the last one. And David and his men rush in among them and slaughter them throughout the night and entire next day until evening. And none of the Amalekites escaped except for 400 young men who fled on camels. David got back everything the Amalekites, this is scripture, not me, this is David, God. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken, and he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of their other livestock. So they got back their livestock. But there was more livestock that these men had stolen. So they drove this, this livestock back with him. The plunder belongs to David, they said. So the extra, out we get ours back, but the extra belongs to David. I mean, what an amazing victory. Wow. God's word. Giving him direction. In addition to all the recovered goods, David and his armor captured an oppressive amount of Amalekite goods. So everyone was praising God. They were shouting, look what God gave us. They came back with more than they had lost. So why am I telling you this obscure story this morning? I believe to get to a very critical point, David and his men came to a moment. And I hear this in my own spirit about me. But I think it's the church of Jesus Christ as well. I love that coming to a moment. I'm reminded of the prodigal. He went and burned up all the money and found himself eating pig slop. And I love what scripture says. It says, and when he came to himself. I could be doing better off as my dad's servant than this. He came to himself. And I think as a church of Jesus Christ, we've got to kind of come to a moment when we choose to get up <coughs> and go after stolen property. The moment we must come for us, we say, wait a minute, am I going to keep sitting here feeling bad for myself? In the name of the Lord, my daughter, my son, my grandchild is going to be reclaimed. In the name of the Lord, I'm not going to give up my calling, my potential in life. Satan, you are going to give me back the property. Satan, I've come against you and resist you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. And in your life and mine here in the middle of 2022, somebody's got to step up. Somebody's got to come to themselves. Somebody has to get on their horse <laughs> and, and retrieve the stolen, fight for the stolen property with weapons of faith and prayer. 
We have to tell the devil, enough. It's enough. If, if, if you are the source of my lack of hearing, it's enough. I've got to come to a place, a moment in me that says, no more. God, refire me, rekindle the flame, restir my heart. I, there are things that God you have given me for eternity that I've not been careful. I'm going to be like David and go after this. Though. I'm going to get on my horse. Every enemy, Satan, our enemy, Satan, has no feelings of sympathy. If we do not resist, he will rip us off every day. <laughs> All year long. That's his diabolical work. Remember, Jesus said, I came to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus came that we might have life more abundant. That he, God, can revive our marriage. He can bring back fire into our soul. Our spiritual calling can blossom up once again. We can recover the faith that the devil stole. I'm not talking about mental ascent that we give to the biblical truths we've heard over and over. I'm talking about some kind of vibrant heart faith and childlike trust in the risen supernatural Christ, the kind of faith that changes the way we live and walk and talk and feel. Oh, God, send the fire just now. Oh, God, baptize me in a fresh fire. Oh, God, change my priorities because they stink, because they have self all over it. Because I've given in, I've given up, I've let go. Oh, God, bring the fire. Remember the song, and baptize everyone. Most of you are too young to even know that song. Satan wants to snatch our faith more than anything else. Because he knows the righteous will live by conviction. No. The righteous will live by repentance. That's a good note. The righteous will live by faith. Romans 1.17. He knows that without faith it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6. Satan knows that the real faith in our lifeline is our lifeline to God's grace and power. If he can ever sever the faith connections, he gains a tremendous victory. He knows that without a living faith, prayer as a force in our lives will be extinguished. We will soon be just mechanically going through the outward forms of religion while experiencing nothing of God's power. But God. But God can revive, freshen our faith if we ask him. He will bring faith alive in us through his word. As Romans 10, 17 declares, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Nothing is impossible with God. In fact, we will see God recover more than we've lost. 
just like David. Oh, God, burning me again. We kind of get in an automatic mode, and our life fits into a, we get up at, we eat breakfast, usually the same thing, and, and we show up at work 10 minutes early, and we do our thing, and Hope that my morality of living and language affect the people around me, and I go home. I have to tell you, that doesn't sound like abundant life. I believe there's a new fire. And I'm calling for God for that fire in me. But there's a new fire that God wants to stir in each of us that gives us an idea of eternity. And as uh, Nick said, that every soul that's out there has an immortal glow of God's glory if we can just touch it with the power and the love of Jesus. Oh, God, hear my cry. Oh, God, pour out your fire. Return to me what the enemy has stolen. Restore to me what the canker worm has destroyed. Return to me the years that I've not been able to sing praise and glorify God and see people's lives affected by that. I mean, that's what the Bible promises when it says we can be more than conquerors. <laughs> Through him who loves us. I don't know if this message was just for me. If so, then I'll stand in the altar and pray for me. Or if there might be some of you here this morning who see the nasty thefts, thief's hand in your life and you are sick and tired of him controlling that part so that you no longer walk in the abundance that God calls us to walk in. This sermon was preached on October 16th, 2022. For more content, you can find us on Facebook or at blessthecitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.